After the Virus, Episode 23, brought to you by After the Virus, a Survivalist Journal, available as an ebook or paperback at Amazon.com or locally in Chico, California at the bookstore. Their objective is now clear. Make it to the Port of Oakland by March 15th. But the obstacles are many. Snags, bridges, soldiers, and pirates block the way. Fortunately, their comrades in resistance camps along their route join in the fight and the flight to purported salvation. Episode 22 concluded with Chris's return with the missing family members who had been pinned down upriver. Chris was driving, and Ashley held Aiden with her other arm around Katie. In the back of the boat, Ethan was bent over. We could not see Travis. Will pulled the other boat in behind them. Chris jumped out and said softly, Give them space. They're hurting. We helped Katie out of the boat, and then Ashley, who was carrying the sobbing Aiden. I stepped into the boat to find Ethan. He was kneeling over Travis, whose clothing looked both tattered and burned. He died defending them. Ethan (laughs) sobbed. I put my arm on his shoulders and just let him cry. Heather, Ashley, and Laurel found a spot for Katie and Aiden to lie down, then sat and comforted them until they were asleep. I stayed with Ethan in the boat. Eventually, he turned and hugged me tightly, wiped off his face, then came and stood with the others near the machine gun. Will told the story. Travis was hit in the first round of gunfire. He kept shooting back while Katie alternated between trying to stop Travis from bleeding and trying to keep Aiden in the boat. Travis was hit a second time, and then Katie started the boat and drove it right up onto the shore. Travis ordered her to take Aiden as far into the vegetation as she could run, while he kept firing the machine gun. The last thing Katie saw was Travis kneeling low in the boat, pinned down between the upstream pursuers and the shooters across the river. All this was happening while the rest of us were racing downstream. Katie said that by the time she and Aiden stopped running, the shooting had stopped, and she had no idea where the enemy was or whether Travis was still alive. After what seemed like an hour, she heard footsteps and hoped that Travis was coming for them. But then she heard voices and knew it was the attackers. Aiden cried out, giving them away, and the men rushed them before Katie could get a shot off. She screamed as they pried Aiden from her, and she managed to stab one of the men in the throat. We heard the scream, too, as we were approaching a few hundred yards away, and we began running through the thick vegetation, tripping, falling. It took us forever to get there, and we quieted down as we got closer. A glow sprang up ahead of us. They'd started a fire. We snuck closer, and then we saw what was happening. The mud men were cutting Katie's clothing off and were holding Aiden over the fire. Just then, Travis, covered with blood, burst into the firelight, ran to the men holding Katie, and with a mighty punch, broke one's jaw. Then he grabbed the other by the head and jerked it so hard we heard his spine snap from 50 yards away. The other mud men, there must have been six or eight, hesitated to shoot for fear of hitting their own as Travis made one last leap, knocking over the man holding Aiden. 
With Travis and Aiden on the ground, we opened up with everything we had. In the melee, Katie snatched up Aiden, and Travis pulled the pin on a grenade and lobbed it into the remaining men. The blast threw Travis into the fire. By the time we got to Travis, he was unconscious, burned, and covered with blood. Ashley attempted to comfort Katie and Aiden while we tried to revive Travis. By the time Chris arrived in the boat, Travis had died. Who are those guys? I asked. River pirates, answered Chris. We saw their handiwork months ago as they butchered other survivalists in camps along the river. They were undoubtedly criminals before the virus, and they banded together on the river the only place some militias couldn't catch them. They survived by taking from others, and raping, torturing, and killing while they're at it. There were others along the east bank. We didn't get all of them. I'm for tracking them down and eliminating them, or they'll just continue to hound us, said Ethan angrily. I agree, said Will. We've got enough to worry about without river pirates stalking us. Jessica, with her bandaged arm in a sling, said, We've got a timeline to think about. We've got to be in Oakland in under two weeks, and... Ethan cut her off. We owe it to my uncle to kill those guys! Everyone stopped and looked at Ethan. Then Chris said, What would Travis have us do? Chase these guys around a river, or get to our destination in possible safety? My uncle would get it done, just like he always did, answered Ethan. We all stood there uncomfortably for a minute. Then Heather said, We could set a trap for them. Everyone looked up. Will smiled and said, Yes, I like that idea. We could set traps for them behind us. The whole group began shattering, suggesting different types of traps. It's getting close to dawn, Chris offered. I'm not comfortable here. Let's head downstream and find a more secluded spot to wait out the day. Everyone nodded in agreement. A few of us helped Ethan remove Travis's body from the boat, hastily dug a shallow grave while the others prepared the boats for leaving. Travis's boat, though full of holes above the waterline, was still running, so Matt and Ashley accompanied Katie and Aiden in boat four. Matt was to pilot it, and Ashley to care for Katie and Aiden. Jessica seemed to be dealing with her injury okay in Will and Laurel's boat. There would only be Ethan and I in our boat. There was a faint glow on the eastern horizon as we shoved off. Everyone was hypervigilant as we floated a mile or two downstream, and found a narrow side channel behind a gravel island. At the back of this channel was a dense cluster of willows, into which we dragged the boats. Leaving the boats in the willows, we walked further into a well-shaded canopy of cottonwoods, where we threw down our sleeping bags. Will stated that he was going to set traps along the perimeter and warned us not to venture too far from camp, to avoid the traps. With my sleeping bag next to Ethan's, we powered down some food, and then I wrapped my arms around him until he fell asleep. It was late afternoon by the time I roused from a hard sleep. I'm writing this as Ethan is conferring with Will, Heather, and Chris. Matt saw I was awake and offered me some stew he had heated up with a mix of our dried meats and some honey mushrooms he had found. Are you sure about the mushrooms? I had to ask him. Yes, for sure. I just had a bunch of them. The stew was great, and I appreciated the heat and the gesture. Now time to prepare for another night float. I pray that it's better than the last. March 4th. Our float started with a bang last evening. Several of them. As we floated the remainder of the channel around the gravel island we'd been camping behind... 
Will, with Laurel's help, strung a series of heavy monofilament lines across the 20-yard span of water behind us. Just two or three feet above the water, the line was stretched, attached to trees on either side. In the center, he hung grenades, rigged so that the pins would pull if the line was stretched. Within ten minutes of us launching the boats, we first heard the scream of outboards behind us. Then, in rapid succession, heard three explosions. The outboards were silenced, and Will shook his fist in the air triumphantly as we sighed in relief. It was unlikely that the pirates would continue following us tonight. After this first scare, the night was mostly uneventful, with the exception of having to dodge many massive snags in the middle of the river. The moonlight has been getting brighter each night, which helped. Well before dawn, we saw a light signaling us a ways ahead. The Calusa camp, whispered Ethan. Out of an abundance of caution, we pulled over and let Chris and Heather make contact. Chris gave the all-okay flashlight signal, and we came ahead. A shallow side channel took off on river left, so shallow that we had to drag the boats for a couple of hundred yards before we hit an area of water, barely deep enough to float the boats just beyond, under a dense canopy of trees. The bank sloped up onto an overgrown levee. Dug into the levee, behind a thick patch of Himalayan blackberries, was a tunnel, which opened into a dimly lit, wide cavern, which had been reinforced all around by driftwood. The rambling space cut into the bank included some enclosed rooms. Some overhangs open to outside, but obscured by vegetation and some enclosures, surrounded by shrubs and trees, but open above. Welcome, said a striking black woman. My name is Keisha. We expected you yesterday, but we are very happy you are finally here. Come on in, dine with us, and take some rest, and we can talk. There was a huge pot of fish chowder, which was delicious and warming. While some of our party continued to talk, most of us lay down for some much-needed sleep. March 5th. Ethan roughed my hair while saying, There's a meeting. I could not tell what time of day it was in the enclosed portion of the compound, but everyone headed towards one of the protected outside areas, and it became clear that it was just after midday. Keisha began by introducing the others of her family. I don't remember all of them. There are about eleven people here, but most of them are older than me. One girl named Madison was about nineteen or twenty and muscular, and a boy named Jackson looked to be about 12. Our contacts believe that the nuclear eradication message is real, began Keisha. The intel is that a skeleton United Nations team retained control of the international arsenal and, along with surviving key figures within the governments of the G7 countries, wrested control of the nuclear weapons of all of the world's major powers, with the exception of North Korea. Now, while most other countries are beginning to heal from the 95% mortality rate of the virus and associated diseases, the remaining population of the United States has devolved into warring factions and lawlessness, essentially a failed state. The militias that have been pursuing us for the last year are a part of a large group who quarantined early, and they have been trying to eliminate all of us who were exposed, but are clearly VNC. If the intel is to be believed, the coded message was designed as a way to weed out those without the intelligence to decipher it. 
The assumption being that it is the less intelligent, including the militias that are doing the plundering, raping, and killing. Unfortunately, as you might guess, there are plenty of very intelligent thieves and murderers out there, so it's doubtful that the plan will work as intended. We're being told that this international group is sending a fleet of ships to major U.S. ports, L.A., Oakland, and Seattle on the West Coast, to pick us up and transport us to... No one can agree on where, but Greenland seems to be the most popular guess. Apparently, once we're safely on our way, they plan to use nukes to eradicate whoever's left behind. Supposedly, the code name for the operation is Project Rapture. As in, we're going to heaven, and everyone else is going to hell. Keisha paused as the weight of her explanation sunk in, and everyone began to talk amongst themselves. We have no way of knowing who and how many will show up at Oakland. We also don't know yet whether the militias know anything about it. The river pirates that you encountered are not affiliated with any group. They exist in constant roving camps along the river and apparently in some mountainous areas. Now we have systematically hunted them down in the areas south of us and don't expect them to be much of a concern. The militias continue to patrol, mostly by helicopter. Now they, they are our biggest threat. There are other perils. Occasionally, we come across murderous clans of people living in squalor like animals. At that moment, it began to rain, and we moved inside, and Keisha began again. We will all be leaving here tonight. We have our own boats pretty ready to go. We know the river below this point, so our boats will be in the lead. Now, you all will watch for problems from behind us. Our first big challenge is just a couple of miles below us. The river passes through the town of Calusa, And if we are going to be sabotaged, that is a likely place. The good news is that we blew up the bridge over the river there, which limits vehicle pursuit. The bad news is that we are going to have to portage out of sight of the town. The river there is just too risky. We have trailers stashed near there, so we can roll the boats along the dirt road on the east side of the river, opposite the town. We will leave in about five hours. Are there any questions? Ethan asked. Yes, where is our next stop, and will we be picking up more refugees? Good question. The next camp south of us was apparently attacked last week, as we have not had a pigeon return from there in that time. Once we get to the site of that camp, we'll reassess. We have many miles to go, and we don't want to miss the boat. So we will make as many miles a night as possible. With that, the group broke up and folks began repacking their things and snacking. A few of our crew went to work on the boats, patching bullet holes and making repairs. Laurel helped Jessica change her bandage. I'm told the wound was okay and not infected. Katie seemed recovered from her trauma, but Aiden was uncharacteristically quiet and somber. The Calusa group tidied up their camp. Then it was time to go. It was still raining when we departed. Keisha went first. With her went the boy Jackson and two others. In all, they added four boats to our fleet. We kept about 100 yards between boats, enough space to react if something happened to the boat ahead. In short order, we were at the spot where we would begin our portage. We could faintly see the shine of the moonlight on structures in the distance. We first pulled onto a gravel bar upstream and across the river from our takeout. 
Keisha dropped off her passengers, and the seven strongest adults got in with her. Ethan, Matt, and Chris from our group. This group paddled across the river to a narrow strip of gravel adjacent to a swift current. Above this point was a barely discernible dirt ramp that went to the top of the levee. The group ducked into the trees and came out five minutes later, pulling a light boat trailer, which they rolled to the top of the ramp. All eight then surrounded the boat and first dragged it fully onto the gravel, then carried it up the ramp and set it on the trailer. We could just barely make them out, as they then rolled the trailer and boat away from us to the south, and half an hour they returned with the trailers absent the boat. Then the next boat was brought over, and the process was repeated, eight times in all. The entire operation took nearly six hours, and it was about 1 a.m. when we finally began floating again, safely below the town of Calusa. And all that time, there was thankfully no sign of humans. After a couple of hours, we approached a bridge near the village of Meridian. We had not anticipated any problems, but sent in a scout boat first just to be careful. As Keisha's boat neared the bridge, we saw, then heard, shots fired from the bridge. We quickly sought cover along the shore. We lost sight of Keisha's boat. Then, about ten long minutes later, we heard the rattle of machine guns. Thanks again for the pleasure of your company, and don't forget to order the ebook or paperback at Amazon.com or locally in Chico at the bookstore.